This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Welcome back to the Can Do Podcast. This is your host, Bill Duncliffe. Thanks for joining us for another episode where the heroes and history and some hijinks of horse racing come alive. Last week, you heard about the hard-knocking race mare at the end of the last century and the dawn of the new one, Rosa Robata. This week, I'm honored to be able to share with you the story of Rosa Robata, the person. Dr. Patricia Heberer-Rice, director of the Office of the Senior Historian at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, joined me to fill in the story of this remarkable young woman. Any life cut too short too soon is a tragedy. When a life is cut short in such a brutal and inhumane fashion, it is nearly unfathomable. How admirable is any person who, in the face of such cruel fate, maintains principle, maintains poise, maintains love, honor, and dignity? Where does such power come from? So, um, Dr. Rice, Rosa Robata, the person, grew up in, I want to pronounce this correctly, Chechnow, uh, Poland, um, which, when I look at a map and kind of look at my history, I think that places it firmly in what was known at the time as the Pale of Settlement, um, which is a kind of interesting area I think a lot of people aren't maybe aware of, but Jewish life was certainly very active and vibrant in that Pale of Settlement area, but it was also at the same time kind of under threat all the time as well, wasn't it? Right. Uh, So this town was a town in what's now north-central Poland. At that point, it was part of, uh, Poland was part of Russia, Tsarist Russia. Uh, Today it has about 44,000 inhabitants, which is, you know, a small city. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time of Rose's birth, uh, she was born in 1921, so the Pale of Settlement had just ceased to exist with the fall of the Tsar. And it was, a, it was now a town of Poland, about 33,000 inhabitants, of whom about 8,000 were Jews. And it was partially, at, at that time, the Pale of Settlement meant that Jews could not live in certain towns. They had to stay in these so-called shtetls, Yiddish, small town, or small community. And at this time, right before World War One, which was before Rose's birth, this was a really thriving community, but there were also, of course, some dangers. There was a good deal of anti-Semitism in the region around this time period. Uh, the Pale of Settlement under the Tsarist regime meant that Jews did not have equal rights uh, with their Polish contemporaries living in that part of the world. It was Russian territory again. And there was violence toward Jews. There were pogroms at the times or, you know, uh, violent actions against Jews by the local Poles. Uh, it had also, World War I, uh, meant an economic downturn. And that meant competition with local Poles. And there was, for example, we know that there was a boycott of Jewish goods in the area by local Christian Poles. And, of course, when you see hard economic times, it always signals a, a, a certain strain of the population to look for a state, 
scapegoat. And of course, that fan anti-Semitism still further. So it was a difficult time. And so I guess it was all those restrictions uh, that existed on them and, and the kind of uh, inborn, if, if you will, uh, anti-Semitism that would have drawn and did draw in many places the Jewish communities in on themselves in, in such a way that they were very, very vibrant and very active. Um, uh, a lot of emphasis on arts, education, culture. Um, correct? Correct. Um, yeah, this was a town, it, it changed in many ways around the time that Rosa was born. Of course, I talked about some territorial changes that it became part of Poland, but um, it, was a, it was a time of, of real change all over Europe. Uh, because you, you would have seen this was still, it still held the remnants of shtetl life. Um, it's, we have a Yitzka book, a memory book that says that the town was really imbued with a great deal of Yiddish kites, so this very vibrant Jewish life, as we've said before. It was also apparently a very pious community, so you had, a, you know, a, a great deal of life revolved around the religious life, life of Jewry in that shtetl. But it's the end of World War One, and you see real secularization in Europe at that time, and it's true here, too, in this little corner of the world. And so Rosa would have seen, you know, um, she would have seen traditional things continue in her uh, little town. There would be the local market, uh, which was right near where the Jewish community was in the town. And with its local market twice a week, uh, kind of... Um, when Jewish life, life really comes alive. She would have seen the marks of piety among local Jews, but she would have seen other things as well. Uh, you see in the, the town really um, a growth of the Zionist movement, so the idea that Jews should go back to what was the Yishuv to them, what was at the time um, uh, Palestine, which was under a British mandate. And you see the growth of kind of secular youth movements like the Hajamar Hatsar. So a lot of secularization going on. It's a very interesting time um, in history. And she was a member of the Hashima Hatzer, um, as you mentioned, correct? Yes, she was. Yes. Um, I... Um, yes, she was a member of this organization. Uh, the Hashima Hatzer was and is a socialist Zionist movement. It's a secular Jewish youth movement. It was founded in part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1913, and so it's the oldest youth organization, youth movement that we have. It was influenced uh, by an earlier organization that in which uh, Jewish youth tried to learn more about their roles, to study about Zionism, socialism, Jewish history, and culture. And so the Hashemar Hitzar uh, believed that the liberation of Jewish youth could be accomplished by aliyah, which is the Hebrew word for immigration. It literally means ascent. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the immigration to Palestine and living on a kibbutz. And uh, this was a very progressive youth movement for its time. It wanted to accept Arabs as uh, equal members in a Palestinian society, and they hoped for a binational state. It was heavily introduced by the Scaldi movement, which was very popular in Germany at the time. Yeah. And so after World War I, this movement spreads to Jewish communities throughout the world as part of 
it's part of a scouting movement that's mm. uh, afoot in Great Britain, Germany, other European countries. And, and this organization, this youth organization, actually spawns a lot of famous resistance figures in the Holocaust, like Rosa Rabada, but also Mordecai Anilovich. He was the leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the young man. In 1943, the most, the, the, one of the most successful uprisings uh, in World War II and among the Jewish, Jewish uh, community during World War II. Of course, the close-knit community of and life in the shtetl was brutally upended with the Nazi invasion of Poland in September of 1939. The, you know, the, we talked about some of the challenges in the in the life in the community um, that that existed, but also some of the, you know, the the, the benefits and, and, and wonderful things and being such a part, uh, a part of such a community. Um, and yet, uh, for all the, the, the hardship that they knew, um, there was certainly nothing like what they experienced when the Nazis occupied Chechnya, correct? Right. Uh, so the German invasion of Poland, remember, happens on the 1st of September 1939, and mm-hmm. they penetrate pretty quickly into the Polish interior. And this part of Poland in which uh, Chechnya uh, was was an area that was annexed directly to Germany, and it took on the German name of, of the city, which was Sihanel. Okay. And we have German officials coming into the city in September of 1939, and the first thing that they actually do is they arrest the local Polish intelligentsia. And they also go through both, both Polish and Jewish homes. We have to remember that the Germans saw Jews certainly as the ultimate enemy, but also Poles as inferior. Mm-hmm. So they're going through uh, offices, houses, organizations, Jews and Christian Poles, uh, looting, uh, desecrating the synagogues of the city, and so forth. Um, several hundred Poles, Christian Poles in the city, were actually uh, massacred in a nearby village uh, as part of what was called the intelligence action. They, uh, the Nazis wanted to um, murder of the um, in, intelligentsia in Poland, so they would kill all potential leaders of resistance. So these are Christian Poles that are being shot, actually. Uh, they shoot some disabled patients uh, in the local city in 1940, and, and an open ghetto was actually formed in Chechnya. And, uh, you know, a really cruel administration begins. Uh, an open ghetto just means that there are no walls, as there were in the Warsaw Ghetto, but it was still the kind of ghetto that you imagine something like Warsaw happened. Just no walls. But the Jews were not allowed to leave. Their valuables were taken. They were subjected to, you know, very um, strict regimens. They couldn't leave. They were subjected to forced labor. There were beatings and hangings for the most marginal infractions. Um, you know, um, local guards could, you know, beat some up, up in the street for, for, for no reason whatsoever. So a very terrifying environment. And then in the summer of 1942, Jews from the ghetto, like Rosa and his family, uh, were sent to Auschwitz. There's also, as the ghetto is liquidated um, in that year, 1942, uh, a number of the, the Jewish inhabitants that aren't sent to Auschwitz meet a terrible fate as well. They're set out to the nearby Red Forest, uh, northeast of the town, and murdered in a mass shooting. Um, That is not so well known. Uh, But uh, many, many Jews, of course, from that area were deported uh, to Auschwitz, Rosa among them. 
I don't think it's possible for any one of us to imagine how we might react under such horrible circumstances. My own personal theory is that what we term courage and what we term cowardice are two sides of the same coin, completely understandable responses to dire circumstance. You know, it, it's I, I, it's interesting. No matter how much you know about these events um, on, a, on a broad scale, um, and even in some detail, when you hear them down at the very... Uh, individual like community level or they, they still they still shock they still uh are, are just oh, so awful to contemplate aren't they yes it's, it's quite it's quite terrible and of course rosa felt that uh you know that there should be some action taken that's her you know that's her organizational kind of motivation springing into action yes yeah and you know it's it's uh it, i find it interesting um you know, and it's understandable too. All these horrific things are going on around you. Let's say that you are a, a, a Jewish resident, or, or a, you know, Polish intelligentsia. Let's say, or just an average Pole under this type of occupation. You see all these horrible things going on, um, and yet there are people, and it's it's understandable that are going to think to themselves, "Well, maybe it's going to stop here. Maybe it won't happen to me," um, and yet. They know what's going to happen to them, right? Uh, but it, but it's it, some some people, unlike Rosa, just get get frozen and kind of hope against hope that it's not going to happen to them, right? As opposed to taking mm-hmm. action, it, it's, it's a very interesting. Yeah. It's a human reaction, but it's 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 interesting. Yeah, and this is we have to remember this is quite early. Nineteen forty-two is the deadliest year of the Holocaust, but you know it's a year in which the final solution is just going into play, uh, and the first deportations um, really to killing centers really begin in December of 1941, so it's still quite early. So I think there, that, you know, human hope springs eternal. They think this is going, this is the worst it can get, uh, and uh, certainly many, many people felt that way. Rosa Robata was deported from the Chechenau ghetto in 1942 to Auschwitz. Upon arrival, she witnessed, as did all who got off those awful trains, the selection process, one which the rest of her family did not survive. And, you know, just just thinking about it, bringing it down to the individual level, too, you know, we talk about the selection and those who can work versus those who can't. You know, keeping in mind, of course, that this is all happening right in front of you. You get off this horrible train journey where you're packed in, and then, you know, you see your family members separated from you right in front of you. You, you know, you may not know what's going to happen, but you figure it out pretty quickly what happened. And uh, I think it's just again bringing it down to the individual level. It's so hard to imagine any of us being in that situation. And, and just um, how do you carry on? And yet she right. she did. You know, uh, she lived actually for quite a long time. Um, yes. yes, and ended she up did. joining. The uh, Sonder Commando Rebellion. Um, how did she, uh, you know, and I, I didn't put this in the questions I sent you, but candidly, how did someone manage to survive as long as she did? Um, I, I, you know, it just has to be pluck and guile. I, I, it, it's got to be an incredible effort just to survive like that. Yeah, it is a long survival in Auschwitz where most people are sent directly to the gas upon arrival. As I said, 1942 is the deadliest year, not at Auschwitz, but uh, in general for Polish, uh, for Polish Jews especially. And it, clearly she was young and strong. She was able to um, 
to work. And it's very clear she joins just as she did within the ghetto. She quickly gets, uh, you know, organizes a resistance cell. And um, she is working in a place that's pretty um, safe and good in terms of survival. Uh, because she's originally imprisoned in the women's camp in Auschwitz One, uh, Auschwitz is actually a complex. There's the main camp at Auschwitz, and then there's Birkenau, which is the killing center. And she's transferred to Birkenau when the women's camp was lo located there, uh, relocated there, in August of 1942. She's working in the Effektenlager, which is uh, the effects camp. She's sorting the clothes and effects of the murdered victims. And sometimes uh, people in these commandos, especially if they're organizing, uh, looking out for each other, uh, you're able to pick up a valuable thing that you can barter. You might be able to find some food in the victim's uh, uh, yeah. clothing mm -hmm. or, or, or effects that might help you uh, live longer. And so this was mm. a strategic place actually to work and that might have helped her survival as well. Rosa was tasked with a horrible task as a trade-off for her survival. But her inner core that comes from, well, from what? Her background, her training, an inner core equally comprised of those factors and some mysterious genetic component wouldn't allow her, couldn't allow her, to passively accept such deprivation. So when the opportunity came to make a difference, she didn't hesitate. True to those organizational roots, she encouraged others to join her in making a difference. So, you know, the, the Sonder Commander Rebellion, if, you're, if you first don't mind talking about what that was, but then I'm just curious how she was recruited to join it and, and, and how she was able to, to do what she did in support of it, because it, that's an that's a incredible story. Right. So um, this Effektenlager, this effects camp where she was working in this labor commando, um, it was adjacent to the crematorium where the bodies of gas chamber victims were burned. And the unit worked in this complex bordering on uh, crematorium number four. And in the immediate area was, it was the, um, the area where the Sonder Commandos worked. And the Sonder Commandos are, uh, it, it's, a, it's a word that means just special unit. These Sonder Commandos are Jewish prisoners at mm -hmm. killing centers like Auschwitz where they, um, they burn, they clear out the gas chambers of the murdered victims, they incinerate them in crematoria, and they move the effects along to where they can be sorted out by people like Rosa. And so she's coming into contact with these individuals. And, of course, her, her roots, as, you know, sort of a, a resistance person mm -hmm. within the ghetto community where she lived, she organizes an underground cell uh, within her own commando, and she makes contact with the Jewish underground in the camp. And the Jewish underground, which is effectively working in Auschwitz I, where she had been, the main camp, uh, which is a little distance away, they get... Uh, to Rosa, Rosa Rabada, and they tell her that they want her help in organizing the smuggling of explosives from the Union uh, Metalwork Factory uh, that makes detonators for artillery shells. And so uh, gunpowder is involved. So that's how she's recruited. 
So she uh, is instructed to pass on what are, you know, gunpowder is an explosive. Mm-hmm. So to members of the Jewish underground and to the Thunder Commando, again, that Jewish workforce, that forced labor unit that's working in close contact with her that removes the bodies of murdered victims from the crematoria. So Rosa Robata makes contact with three Jewish women, women working in the section of the factory that's producing gunpowder. Uh, this factory was completely um, um, run by Jewish forced labor, so they're all Jews in this particular factory, this union factory. And she finds three female prisoners, Ala Gertner, Regina Safferstein, and Esther Weisblum. Weisblum, excuse me, Esther Weisblum. And these women smuggle the gunpowder out in matchboxes to Rosa, and of course later they share her fate. And we know that roughly about 20 Jewish women are involved in giving Rosa those materials. These were very young women uh, between the ages of 18 and 22. And once Rosa has those that gunpowder stored up, and remember, these are being smuggled out in matchboxes. Mm, mm. So they're, we're talking about very little amounts at a time. And then Rosa, um, smuggles explosives to members of the Thunder Commando who work nearby. They are the impetus for the coming revolt. And think about this, the preparation for storing enough gunpowder to blow something up takes about a year and a half. So this is very slow going uh, yeah. to be able to, uh, to, to store up that amount of powder. The Sonderkommando Rebellion at Auschwitz, resulting in the destruction of Crematorium No. 3, took place on the 6th of October in 1944, as news of the approach of the Red Army continued to filter into the camp. One can imagine that with the Nazi view of the Jewish identity, the success of the rebellion required smashing the ring of conspirators that had participated in it. So, Rosa isn't involved in the actual revolt when it happens on the 7th of October 1944. She's given them the gunpowder and one thing you have to know about the Thunder Commandos, particularly in Auschwitz, is that they have this grisly work to do. They know more about the killing process than any other prisoners. And they are routinely murdered. Every couple months, they're murdered, and a new Thunder Commando is taken from arriving Jewish uh, prisoners arriving to the camp. And so the Thunder Commando, they know from the underground that the Red Army, the that's the official name of the Soviet Army. The mm-hmm. Red Army is coming. And they think, well, the camp probably will be liquidated and we'll, we'll certainly be killed. We'll certainly be killed soon because we know a lot and they don't want us to get in the hands of our enemies. And so the Thunder Commander plans this revolt. Of course, it's a year and a half in the making. And in October, uh, the 7th of October, 1944, they carry out this very famous revolt. Um, many of the killing centers like Treblinka, Sobibor, and Auschwitz actually had prisoner revolts. This was a revolt that was very quickly and brutally crushed. Uh, the SS killed hundreds of prisoners to bring the revolt to an end. Uh, but the Thunder Commandos succeed not only in killing about 80 of uh, the, uh, the guard officials, mm-hmm. uh, but in, in destroying crematorium number four, uh, which stays out of operation until the liquidation of the camp, it's destroyed beyond repair. 
and by that next month, because I've already said the the Nazis, the Germans know that the Red Army is coming. The too, Soviets yeah. are going to be there very soon. Yeah, and so they actually hold gassings in all of the camp. So this kind of is set kind of a precedent. This destruction of this crematorium kind of inspires the the Germans in the camp to think about closing down the rest of the gas chambers okay. um, as the Red Army approaches. They want to destroy the evidence. Of course. Wow. So how was her role, because um, it was discovered, obviously, How do we know how her role in the rebellion was discovered? Yeah, so in the aftermath of the revolt, of course, the political department within the camp Gestapo, they had, uh, they had a, a political section uh, within the camp with, you know, what would be secret state police. That's, the, that's what the acronym Gestapo means. Uh, and so they begin an investigation. And around the 10th, 9th or 10th, uh, so two or three days after yeah. the revolt, uh, which is, again, quickly crushed, the investigators go to these three women because they know gunpowder is involved. Right, and so they go to Ella Gertner, Regina Safferstein, and Esther Weisblum, and they arrest them. And these women are tortured, but they refuse to name the individuals, um, male and female prisoners who took part in smuggling explosives. And so, after a few weeks, they the Gestapo decides, the police on site decide that they're not going to get anywhere with these women. Maybe they know nothing and the women are released, and they go back to the factory. But instead, they don't quite give up. They take a, sort of an undercover agent. <laughs> um, God knows what they told him, but this was a half-Jew from Czechoslovakia who was a prisoner in the camp, and they probably threatened him with his life, and they said, you're going to go, and you're going to be the head of this work squad where Rosa is working, and you're going to kind of as a mole to see if he could figure out what role women played in this rebellion because they know that gunpowder came from that factory, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. or, or probably that it came from that factory. And Koch is able to insinuate himself. Again, I don't, I'm not certain, but I'm guessing he was under duress to do so. And he's able to discover the names of the women who had taken part in the rebellion and uh, by smuggling out this gunpowder. And this leads to the arrest of those three original accomplices of Rosa who got the munitions out of the munitions factory and Rosa herself. Even as she was tortured and placed under unimaginable duress, Rosa's courage and determination incredibly never wavered. Mm. Mm. Well, that was one of the, uh, I don't want to use the term genius, but one of the things that they were very effective at was... Uh, putting people under duress to uh, turn in others, right? And, and, the, and the false kind of promise that, that you will benefit, you will, you know. Uh, Correct. And it's like that grasping onto hope that we talked about earlier, right? Well, maybe, yes. you know, maybe if I do this, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, can, we can only imagine what type of torture Rosa and her friends endured. Um, what, you know, what do you think enabled them to hold on to the secrets that they had and not, you know, give give everyone else up. That, 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 we can't imagine. I think it's hard to imagine the, the internal strength it takes to 
resist and, and, and not give in to that type of, 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 of horrible abuse. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course they were brutally, brutally tortured. And, um, there was a lot of fear, especially when Rosa Roboto was, um, she was a well-known personality in the camp. She's well-known among the Jewish prisoners and everyone who participated in this revolt in some way knew that because she was the glue, right? The women, the women smuggled the stuff out, right? These three women who were also arrested with her, but it's Rosa who makes the connection to the Sondra commanders. Right. She knows a lot of people by name. And so there's some real fear that she would uh, tell under duress, under such terrible torture that she would give up the names mm. of her co-conspirators. And none of the women gave away their comrades. We know that Rosa named one person, but she knew that this person had died in the revolt. Okay. So, okay. Smart, so, actually. Smart. you know, just yeah. to throw them, throw them a bomb. Right, right, right. right. Uh, but it's almost inhuman courage. And I think the thing that gives them the strength, there are a few things going on. Um, the loyalty to their fellow resistance members in the camp, um, the wish to save those lives. I think Rosa probably and her comrades entertained no hope that they would survive. Um, and so by holding on to this torture, they were going to show the loyalty to people who weren't given up. And, um, we also, we know that one of her underground colleagues was able to bribe his way into the bunker uh, where Rosa was being held. And we know um, some of her last thoughts. And I'll just, I, I made a note of those. And let me just read. So this is as he's leaving, uh, this, this gentleman says, and I quote him, at the sound of the door opening, she turned her face to me. Then she spoke her last words, or at least the last words that uh, we know of that are written down. She told me that she had not betrayed anyone. She wished to tell her comrades that they had nothing to fear. We must carry on. It was easier for her to die knowing that our actions would continue. It's a pity to lose one's life and to have to leave the world, but she did not regret her actions. And I think another thing that's going on is something that we know about prisoners in the concentration camp system from a seminal kind of very important work that was done afterwards in interviewing people who survived places like Auschwitz. And we know that those people who did some form of resistance, Jewish or non-Jewish, uh, had a better, were able to face a terrible fate more easily and with not more courage, I, I, yes, more courage, but it also takes courage when you're afraid, right? Um, they were able to, because they knew that they had struck a blow, um, that they had struck a blow of vengeance. Remember, Rosa's entire family died. And so uh, those individuals who, it's easier to accept their fate because they understood that they, um, you know, they had struck a blow to the Nazis and this killing machine. Um, quite visibly in this case, <laughs> the yeah, entire crematorium yeah. was blown up. Yeah. So, so I think that that, that uh, was among those ideas that she felt, that, that she had done something important. Well, I'm, I'm getting a little choked up here, really, just listening to this. And, and I knew it was coming, too. You know, it's just it's <laughs> so, to think of the courage of such a young woman to... Uh, you know, to take responsibility, to take accountability under such horrific circumstances, to take action, and then to 
suffer the consequences of those actions proudly. You know, um, it's, um, you know, I think of what a callow youth I was at age 22 or so. (laughs) And, 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 you know, it's so hard for any of us to imagine being put into such circumstances. And uh, um, I think the, the story is worth telling just for that alone, because I think as time passes on, people do lose sight of, like I said, down at this very individual level, what happened to people and, and, and how they how they suffered, but how they, how they lived also. Never wavering even to the end, thinking not of herself but of others, she did not despair at her bitter end. She inspired. Uh, so, I, so her execution, and she of course knew that her life was forfeit, that's obvious from the, what she told her friend who went to see her. And on the 6th of January, 1945, this is about two weeks before the camp is actually evacuated. And this, the Red Army arrives uh, in the 27th of January. So this is quite late. This is actually one of the last executions in the camp. And Rosa Rabada and her three colleagues are hanged in the presence of the other officials. Two at night, including Rosa Rabada, with Ala Gertner and then Esther Weisblum and Regina Sefferstein uh, the next day, or uh, in the, at least in the daytime. And Rosa was, at this time, 23 years old. And there are accounts of her last known words. There are differing accounts because there are different eyewitness statements. But we know that the women were yelling before they were hanging uh, they were yelling the word nakama, which is Hebrew for revenge or vengeance. And other eyewitnesses heard her say, Rosa Rabada say, be strong and have courage. And that's very interesting. I, I had always known that these were her last words, but in, in wanting to talk to you today, I wanted to be better informed. And I found out that this is actually a biblical reference. Uh, this is from the book of Joshua. And... The, the actual phrase, at least in an Old Testament edition of that, is, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's the actual verse. And it's what's said to Joshua. Remember Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho? Joshua is the successor of Moses. And it's said to him, this this. This phrase is sent to him at the time of Moses' death, when he has to take up Moses' mantle. Remember, Moses is leading them from Egypt, from the Exodus, into the Promised Land, to Canaan. And um, so I did a little Bible reading (laughs) and a little bit of biblical history. And so then she's not only saying, take courage into your own hands, but she's also assuring them, I think, uh, what she might have, meant by using this particular phrase, this particular biblical reference, is not only not only take your courage into your own hands, but also that a new leadership will spring up among the prisoners going. to lead them out of the exodus yeah. and to the promised land. Yeah. So freedom in this Yeah. Oh, that's, fant- that's fascinating. That is fascinating. And, you know, uh, really it's not going to be any surprise to anyone. This was a woman of, you know, who's listening to this, a woman of incredible courage and to have that presence of mind even at the last to look beyond herself um, is remarkable actually absolutely remarkable
Rosa and her rebellion colleagues are rightly remembered at Yad Vashem, Israel's official memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. At the Montefiore Randwick Residential Care Facility in Randwick, Australia, Holocaust resistance fighter and fellow Hashemer Hatzair member Sam Poppy Spitzer ensured that the gates to the facility were dedicated in Rosa's honor. And of course, her name, her spirit, her life, her legacy are also remembered in the name of a horse, one who fought hard every time she ran, who never shy from a test, and who honored her namesake by never ever giving up. It seems odd to start with a horse, right? And then, uh, uh, but, but, you know, um, it's, 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 it's a valuable, it's, it's, the horse has served a valuable lesson, I think, you know, in, in highlighting again, the name of this, you know, very heroic young woman, uh, incredibly heroic young woman, but she is honored, uh, actually, in Yad Vashem and in Australia and God knows other places, I guess, right? Um, for all yes, I know. yes, correct. Yeah, uh, she's um, she's probably one of the most well-known um, members of that 1944 revolt, mm-hmm. uh, best known to Holocaust scholars. In fact, she's better known than the Thunder Commando. Na- the names of the Thunder Commando, who uh, many of them were incidentally Greek and Hungarian. Um, um, uh, Jews, uh, and we don't know all of their names, but we do know roses. And um, yes, the monument that's most well known is actually at Yad Vashem. That is the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, my organization's sister organization in Jerusalem. It is the authority on the Holocaust in the state of Israel, and there's a monument for her and the three other women. And it's in a very prime location in the garden uh, that stands outside the museum. And um, I understand it's a bit unorthodox to name a racehorse after a Holocaust martyr and heroine. But as I understand it, every time her name comes up, this, this, the name of the horse comes up, or she's, she's run a race by now, she's retired. But when she ran the race, this story was retold, and her memory is rekindled every time uh, this, this horse is mentioned because of the unique name. So I think that's, um, that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of this I'm a, I'm a history buff, and, and one of the things that I always like to remind people of is, um, you know, if you're driving down, or you're in Falls Church, Virginia, or you're up here in Amesbury, Massachusetts, you're driving down the street, and you'll see on top of a signpost that this is you know, private Ed McKinley Square or whatever, you know, and, and I always like to right. remind people that that name had meaning, that life had meaning, um, and likely is being there is the result of something tragic happening to that person. Um, right. So I, I really do enjoy very much the opportunity to bring this kind of history back to life and just make sure that these stories get, get told because um, they have resonance, uh, they should have resonance and continue to have resonance every every single day. And, and uh, I think the more we learn about people like Rosa, um, the more that can inform our own daily lives and how we treat each other and, and how we just conduct ourselves on a daily basis. Let us never forget.